Hello, everybody, and welcome into this episode number 27 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, what did Jesus suffer on the cross beyond the nails, suffocation, and physical torture? Now, here's the thing. Today's passages are quite heavy in many ways. In Genesis 28, Jacob is sent out away from his family and away from his elder brother Esau, who kind of understandably wants to kill him. He's going to go try to find a wife and raise a family of his own. Esther chapter 4 sees Queen Esther contemplating risking her life by approaching the king and asking for him to somehow stop the slaughter of the Jews that the evil Haman has uh, orchestrated. Acts 27, Paul is bound for Rome to appeal to Caesar as a prisoner on board a ship with uh, around 300 people, and a tremendous storm comes along and basically sinks it, and everybody has to abandon ship. And Far and away, the darkest and heaviest passage of all, Matthew 27, is focused on the terrible suffering of Jesus on the cross at Golgotha. Now, it's Monday. That's not normally most people's favorite day of the week, and our topic for the day is heavy. But let me give you some encouragement. Let me assure you, when we get to the place today, when we more fully understand the depth of pain and the suffering of the resurrection, I think our final emotion is going to be relief, maybe even some joy rather than heaviness, relief that you and I were spared or could be spared from such a fate by the eternal love of the Father and His Son. So, let's read Matthew chapter 27 and dig in. This is chapter 27 of Matthew from the Christian Standard Bible. When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, It's not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it's blood money. They conferred together and bought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called blood field to this day. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, You say so. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, Don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it that you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. 
While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, What should I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? They all answered, Crucify him. Then he said, Why? He's done no wrong. But they kept shouting all the more, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children! Then he released Barabbas to them, and, after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, "'Hail, King of the Jews!' Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals crucified with him taunted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, Well, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two, top from bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were also 
opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him were there, watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. When it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he had cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were seated there, facing the tomb. The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. So, give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come, steal him, and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guard. If you will recall, before Jesus was arrested, he was praying in the garden, anticipating what was coming, and asking God to deliver him with great drops of bloody sweat coming off of him. The prayer of Jesus here was intense beyond any sort of level that most of us can understand, and he almost was overcome just in the act of praying. Consider what New York pastor Tim Keller says. If the anticipation of these sufferings, if the very taste of these sufferings sent the Son of God into shock, what must it have been like to drink them to the bottom? Now, what did Jesus face? in terms of the crucifixion. I don't want to have a long episode of this podcast that just digs into the gory details, but I do think it's worth reflecting for a few minutes on the physical torture that the Son of God took in my place, in your place. And I'm not going to go through everything, but just a few things to highlight. The scourging. A scourge is a type of whip that had at its tip, there were several tips, that is. It's not like an Indiana Jones-style whip that you snap on somebody. It's a shorter thing with several tails on it, sort of like a cat of nine tails. And the end of those leather strips had metal balls or bones or something jagged in it. And basically, when you scourge somebody, you whip it into their back, and then you yank it out. And the harder part is the yanking of it out. The church historian Eusebius, talking about a scourging, said their bodies were frightfully lacerated, their veins were laid bare, and the inner muscles and sinews, even their entrails, were exposed. When 
we hear the verse, by his stripes we were healed, that's not really first and foremost about physical healing. It's primarily about the fact that Jesus was beaten, disfigured, and had the wrath of God poured on him for his for our sins so that he was perfect for our sins so that we can be healed. What else did Jesus suffer? Well, there was the crown of thorns, the repeated beatings, the pulling out of his hair and things like that, the indignity of being stripped and spit on, etc. He also was given a heavy wooden crossbar to carry a long distance, uh, very likely weighed over a 100 pounds, incredibly difficult for a man to carry that with a ripped and bleeding back. And when Jesus was carrying it, the Bible tells us that he fell, and very likely carrying such a weight and falling to the ground would have caused that weight to crush you uh, and reverberate essentially on the ground. Uh, we'll talk in a minute about how exactly Jesus died, but it's very likely, very possible at least, and even perhaps likely, that he died from this injury when that 100-pound crossbar crushed his chest into the ground. We'll talk about that in a minute. What else did Jesus face? Well, he was crucified. Now, that means stretched out and attached to a wooden pole or a wooden cross, wooden pole with a crossbar on it. And we get the word, our word, excruciating from there. The Roman statesman Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and disgusting penalty. Jewish historian Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. It was such a terrible thing that the Romans would not even use the word in conversation. It was as if it was a curse word. Such a horrible, horrible thing. Basically, with crucifixion, you would die because eventually, whether you were nailed or tied to the wood, Jesus was nailed, other people were tied. The way you would die is eventually your leg muscles would no longer be able to push you up to take a breath and you would just become literally exhausted. Your lungs would fill with fluid and you would suffocate. Terrible, terrible, painful way to die. What else did he suffer? Well, it's possible that the sponge that was put in Jesus's mouth that was so soaked with the gall wine was actually toilet paper. Uh, the Romans didn't have toilet paper. They used sponges for toilet paper. And the way they cleaned those sponges was they put them in gallish wine to sterilize them so that they wouldn't get infection. So this may not have been terribly painful, but if that theory is true, it's horribly, horribly, it's such a horrible, disrespectful thing to do to somebody. Finally, Jesus was speared in the side. If you were to come in my office right now where I'm posting, uh, recording this podcast, and you were to pierce me in the side with a spear, um, blood would come out. And, and I hope you don't do that. That would be rude. And I think my kids would, my wife would be uh, pretty upset at that. But when Jesus was pierced, we're told that blood and water came out, which is a really interesting thing because I don't 
think they had the medical knowledge at the time to understand what exactly was going on here, but the blood in the water tells a modern doctor that Jesus was dealing with a condition called hypovolemic shock, which could have come from his woundings from the scourging, or it could have come from his woundings when the crossbar crushed his chest and crushed his lungs. Basically, his lungs were already filling up with fluid because of that injury. Now, despite all of that, and we didn't cover everything, but despite everything you just heard about the sufferings of Jesus, the fact of the matter is the depth of the sufferings of Jesus, the thing he really was um, asking God to deliver him from in the garden was not so much the crucifixion. As Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane prayed, Father, take this cup from me. What does that even mean, take this cup from me? It's a weird thing to say, unless you understand that multiple times in the Bible, it is in the Old Testament, God's wrath or his punishment for those who have sinned is spoken of figuratively as being in a cup. And so the cup of God's wrath is spoken of. And so when Jesus is saying, take this cup from me, he's not using a metaphor that was common at the time that meant take me out of this situation. No, no, he's talking about a specific cup. And he's not talking about, I don't believe, the physical sufferings of the cross. He's talking about the cup of the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God that is due for every sin ever committed. So think about this, an infinite God can suffer infinitely. So yes, Jesus died in our place, but in addition to that, along with that, I should say, he suffered wrath for us. Isaiah 53 explains it in verse 4. Isaiah 53 verse 4 talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. He himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. We in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds." We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So it's the most unfair thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, that God the Father would punish his perfect and precious son for my sin and your sin. Jonathan Edwards, uh, a writer in America in the 1700s, one of our best theologians, said this about the wrath of God. He said, some have asked, what was the occasion of Jesus's distress and agony in the garden of Gethsemane? And there's been many speculations about it, why Jesus was asking the cup to be taken away. But Edward says, the account which the scripture gives us is sufficiently full in this matter and doesn't leave room for speculation or doubt. The thing that Christ's mind was so full of at the time was, without a doubt, the same thing that his mouth was so full of, which was the dread which his human nature had of the dreadful cup, which was vastly more ter terrible than King Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. 
Jesus had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be thrown. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand in view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. For what was the human nature of Christ in comparison to such a mighty wrath as this? Now, you might not be comfortable with the idea of talking about the wrath of God, but biblically speaking, there's no question about it. God's wrath is real. It's mentioned somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 times in the Old Testament. And God's wrath is personal, just like his love. God's wrath is necessary. It is justice towards those who have beaten up their wives, who have abused and raped children, who've murdered innocents, people like Hitler, people who are evil. They must be met with righteous wrath and unbiased punishment. The only problem is, if we're honest, you and I have committed shameful, evil things as well. We've hurt other people in many terrible ways. And in a sense, the bad news for us is God is perfectly just. The good news for us is God is perfectly loving. Now, God is not mean on the one hand, and that stands in for justice and loving on the other. No, no, justice is necessary, and God is good. And because God is good, a hundred percent good, because God is light and in him is no darkness at all, he is just and loving. My sins, your sins, they've justly earned us punishment because God is perfectly just. He can't just wave away our sins and say, oh, I forgive you, you're fine. There must be a price paid for sins. However, if we had to pay that price, if I had to pay the price for my sins, and you had to pay the price for your sins, the bottom line is it would utterly annihilate us. It is literally a debt that we are unable to pay. So, because God is just, he can't wave away the debt of our sins. Because he's perfectly loving, he won't force us to pay the debt of our sin. God's justice demands punishment. God's love produces mercy. And that is why Jesus paid it all. So the pain of the cross was not merely the physical aspects of being crucified. If you study history, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe more than that, were crucified in the ancient world. Many, many people have suffered that fate. Jesus wasn't the only one that cru- that was crucified. Some of the disciples were crucified. One time around 70 AD, the Roman general Titus was supposed to have crucified thousands of people in one day, according to Josephus. Uh, it's, it's, it's not unique. What is unique though is that Jesus was crucified and in the midst of being crucified, the entire punishment that was due for all of the sins of humanity was poured out on him. 
A mere mortal would have been grounded to powder instantly, but it could be said, as I said above, an infinite God can suffer infinitely. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He suffered and died of his wounds in crucifixion, but he also suffered a vast amount more as the punishment that brought us peace that Isaiah was talking about was cast down upon Jesus. That, I believe, is the true torture and the true brilliance of the cross. If Jesus had merely died on the cross and overcame death, that would be great and all, but that wouldn't help us much. After all, how much payment can one death on the cross cover? I guess one capital punishment can cover one person's heinous crimes, one life to save a life, but that's not what happened with Jesus. Not only did he die a sinner's death, he died millions upon millions of sinners' death, and thus in his death and suffering, we have peace. I was at an amazing powerful, beautiful prayer and worship gathering tonight with uh, pastors and church leaders from churches all across the central uh, California area, Monterey, Salinas, places like that. People from I mean, almost every tribe and tongue. It was, uh, it was a gathering in Spanish and in English, but there were also Filipinos and, and Chinese people there and, and all sorts of people. And it was just so, so wonderful. Um, and we sang this song. And it's a song that I absolutely love every part of, except the last line. The last line implies that Jesus, while hanging on the cross, thought of me uh, above all. Now, how that could be true for everybody singing the song, I'm not really sure. Uh, but if that song makes people think that Jesus on the died on the cross smiling and happily thinking that he was glad to give his life for us, then I think that's a little inaccurate. I believe that Jesus did think of me, and you too, while he was on the cross, but not in a happy sort of whimsical way, but he thought of me when he was paying the terrible price of my sins. His thoughts of me were likely at that time agonizing, and yet he endured, and he paid the price, and he overcame death, and offers all who believe in him eternal life. And that is far better to me than the silly thought that Jesus was suffering to the highest extent possible for a being to suffer while on the cross, and while doing so, was happily thinking about me with a silly grin on his face. But, that said, I rejoice at the crucifixion, in a weird sort of way. Honestly, we should weep for the price that it cost our Savior to redeem us, but those tears should be tears of joy and gratitude, not the bitter tears of somebody facing a terrible punishment. The resurrection and crucifixion stand at the literal center, the crux of Christianity. Without the crucifixion, we, you and I, are lost in our sins and still owe the righteous price that a 100% just God demands. Without the resurrection, there's no hope for a future life enjoying the paradise that the crucifixion bought for us. We're here one day and gone the next. Life is short. But because of the crucifixion, crucifixion, All those who look to Jesus in wholehearted faith, believing that he died in our place and following him, A, we, you, will be saved from the punishment due our wrongdoing sins. But not only that, because of the crucifixion, because of Jesus paying the price for our sins, we can be viewed by God the Father as fully righteous, as having the righteousness of Jesus because his perfection has atoned for and covered our wrongs. And man, there's something just 
beautiful and exciting and joy producing in that. So I think we should contemplate the crucifixion of Jesus with a heavy heart. But man, that heaviness is just absolutely overcome by the joy that comes washing down right after that. Because he spared us from such a terrible fate. And he went through that fate for us. And if you're a Christian who has wholeheartedly followed Jesus in faith, then I just urge you to rejoice. But if you're not, you're still learning about Jesus, you're still on the fence, or you've never given your life to him in faith, believing and followed him, I would say what he has done for you is beyond all understanding. And the thing about Christianity is you don't do anything to earn that. You don't have to do anything to be saved. It is what he has done for you. So simply believe, have faith in Jesus and in his sacrifice that it was for you and follow him and you will have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 through 25. Let's just read verse 23. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. And that, my friends, is our message. And that was the topic today. Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because what he did on the cross is the most magnificent thing that has ever happened in his history. And now we get to Genesis chapter 28, verse 1. So Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite girl. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you become an assembly of peoples. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob to Padan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau noticed that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him to Paddan Aram to get a wife there. When he blessed him, Isaac commanded Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite girl. And Jacob listened to his father and mother and went to Paddan Aram. Esau realized that his father Isaac disapproved of the Canaanite women, so Esau went to Ishmael and married, in addition to his other wives, Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She was the sister of Neboeth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place, and he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out towards the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. Then Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you give me. Esther chapter 4 When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathat one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last thirty days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. Acts 27 verse 1 When it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. When we had boarded a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. 
When he'd put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After sailing through the open sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Sailing slowly for many days, with difficulty we re arrived off of Sinaitis. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed along the south side of Crete off of Salmoni. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassay. By now, much time had passed and the voyage was already dangerous. Since the Day of Atonement was already over, Paul gave his advice and told them, Men, I can see that this voyage is headed towards disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete facing the southwest and northwest, and to winter there. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Cotta, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship fearing they would run aground on Sirtris. They lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar, and indeed God has graciously given you you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe that it will be, I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me, but we have to run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, and about midnight, the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took soundings and found it to be a hundred and twenty feet deep. When they'd sailed a little further and sounded again, they found it to be ninety feet deep. Then, fearing we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the back. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes, holding the skiff, and let it drift away. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing, so I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. 
After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he had broke it, he began to eat. They were all encouraged and took food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea at the same time loosening the ropes that held the rudders. Then they foisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape, but the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul, and so he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. This way... Everyone safely reached the shore. Amen. That was the word of the Lord. I hope it was refreshing water to your soul on this Monday. May the Lord encourage you. May he bless you. May his light shine on you. Godspeed to you.